right, tonight we have a special guest. We have Grant Schultz. Grant of VersaLand is going to tell us about his new inventions, hopefully. Uh, we're going to talk about his old inventions. We're going to talk about his plans and talk about how he started out. We're going to get to a lot of things, hopefully. We have got a bunch of questions from you, and hopefully we, we can answer them all. Here we go. myself but I really am in a non-buffered mood right now like I really the last few days I really realized that the people that I know that tend to compromise a lot they don't get anything done mm-hmm. and I, I miss um, when I was a little more extreme and stubborn let's talk about that then okay yeah uh, but I do I do want to like address these questions because if they're questions they're legitimate questions about stuff the way things I've been doing sure things. sure so are, are you I mean from my perspective with your your company uh, new farm supply you're focusing on spreading um, your program spreading your germplasm so that other people can start setting up uh, a similar okay. ecosystem that you are building and spreading right yeah I, I, I one of my major intentions with that is to is to work myself out of a job for that. Um, you know, I realized, you know, I had a small nursery and it's it's grown year by year, and I realized there's demand for that locally anyway. And as soon as I went online, I realized, holy buckets, there's lots of people that want these specific species of plants that they can't really get to too many places. Can't get them anywhere. Sometimes. And and this year I ship stuff from. Berkeley, California to the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. So literally Berkeley. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I sold pretty much solely locally in the past, um, farmer's market, word of mouth coming out, you know, and there's a lot of friction with that because someone calls and like, Hey, I want to get 10 chestnut trees. Can you think of a time where we can meet on a Sunday? And I'm passing through, and then you, get, you like make set aside a certain time, and then they're an hour and a half late, and when it's all said and done, you sell like $30 of chestnut trees, and you're like, oh, man. And on some level, you're happy that you sold some trees, but on the business perspective, it's just like, this is not scalable. This sucks. Um, so online e-commerce model was really a way for me to expand it in a big way. Certainly did that. Um, but there's also something to be said for shipping plant material long distances, no matter how careful you are about it, you know, in the dormant season and packaging well and all that, is that there's a good chance that something is going to be in a cardboard box for four or five days, getting bounced around in trucks all over the country, you know? Um, so I think there's still definitely an opportunity for lots and lots and lots and lots of people to have good plant stock, you know, in a local marketing radius. So... Yeah. Awesome. So are you are you doing any veggies at all? I am, but it's pretty much just for the table. Awesome. Uh, for personal consumption. Um, and even and even that, like I have, you know, quite a few friends that run CSAs that are very close to me, and that's their job to grow vegetables at scale. Um, and I find myself more often than not, you know, buying the bulk of my categories from over the fence than trying to grow it myself in the short term, just because I'm so occupied doing, you know, other things. Um, yeah, when do you feel like you're going to switch gears? Because 
<laughs> the thing is, uh, I, and you know, I've noticed it as I've developed my property, is we change roles. Is our job, it's like, it's almost like we're land parents or something, and it's like, oh, well, those skills that you had, you can table those now, and you now have to learn these totally new set of skills because now you're on to something else. You're preparing trees, or you're preparing, you know. For sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I came on to my current site in mid-April 2013. Like, I've barely been there two years, right? Um, and it was a bare, I mean, bare lands, no, no buildings whatsoever, zero buildings, no infrastructure, no water, no well, no electricity, no nothing. It's just bare land. And I was fighting through that, you know, I mean, still, I still am in many ways, kind of pioneer style, getting that infrastructure going. And you're right, you know, once you drill a well, you never have to think about it for at least 25 years. You know? Hopefully. Hopefully, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, my skills, my skills are static. I mean, I shouldn't say they're static, but once you acquire a skill, it doesn't really go away. But you don't have to utilize it all the time. So I find myself doing a lot of these high input, you know, mechanical type things getting going that hopefully I'm never going to have to do, you know, again. Um but it's certainly occupying way more of my time in the short term than, than other pursuits would, you know, in theory, 10 years from now. So, uh, are you looking uh, forward to a certain stage in the development? Like, are you like, when I reach that point or are you like in the middle of the journey and like, that's where you're at or, you know, man, you know, it's part, it it is a journey, right? And I Mm. really thrive no matter what I'm doing on that initial startup phase of pulling things together and, you know, essentially doing the impossible. And then that, that management, that, that, stasis kind of phase where it's just humdrum day-to-day monotony i really dislike it um and in a homestead sense that's different where you avoid that because there's always that seasonal variability but if it's just the same thing every day i go nuts so we buy more land right well that's that's something i want to talk about is that i think that that is uh an option um you know, five flags theory. I think that, like, I have I have heavy herbicide application on two sides of the farm. You know, not that far away from me, and that that reality is not going away anytime soon. And no matter how well I do what I'm doing on my land, that still is a concern on the broader scope of things for sure. Um, so a part of me says, you know, hey, get this thing dialed in, in the next couple of years. Certainly keep it and maintain it, but definitely try and establish uh, a similar site or a mirrored site or something totally different somewhere else in the, in the world, um, you know, potentially not even in the U.S. Interesting. I've, yeah. I've been talking to people lately and they're, they're all talking about how they're in other countries and it's like, oh, you just, just topped over there, did you? And they're like, yeah, I'm just <laughs> over here now. I'm just, it's awesome over here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, don't, I, just, I, I just jumped to Costa Rica or Chile. Yeah, I just, I just do that. It's the thing. Yeah, to me, I mean, it sounds so totally shocking to just do that but the more you think about it it's very attainable and it's in many ways it's it's more attainable than in the states like you know you're in california and i I mean i just got back from sonoma county you look at land values and and marin and sonoma county beautiful part of the world definite water issues but the land prices like that puts iowa to shame it's crazy out there um you know for a dollars to unit area of productivity it's nuts um, 
And if you look at um, relative cost of living, even in, in you know somewhat modernized parts of the world like Europe, you can be in Greece or Macedonia with a really great climate, super cheap. You know, I think of uh, Moldova, Latvia, Lithuania, like parts of the you know that's really attractive to me. Yeah, in a crazy way. Well, lifestyle. I think, I mean, some some of those areas, if you rated it like per capita per square inch, it might actually balance out. Yeah, I don't know, man. It depends on the place, right? Like, it's still denser in some of those parts of the world too. I think we're looking through our our U.S. lenses a little, you know, too much. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm ready to pick up new lenses. I don't know where the secret shop is. <laughs> true, true. And the secret shop is travel. Yeah. Which, you know, I had a discussion not so long ago with a mutual friend of ours, Ariel Greenwood, and the idea of becoming a, a land-based person and committing to place is really important. But on the same level, if all you know is your own backyard, how can you ever let other perspectives into that? So we're on this, this teeter-totter of, how much travel is a good, good thing and how much you know, do you really need to commit to a place and, and develop that and, and make it your own? And there is good, this happy medium, definitely, that has to be attained. You know, you've got to find the, the right balance. And it's really tough when you're so time-strapped and so cash-strapped and you can't find a good network to help you hold it down and you know, what do you do? Um, so it's a definite challenge, so that, that community balance and that travel balance for sure. So are you planning on touring? I, I would love to do a winter tour. I really would. Um, and we'll see where the world takes me. Yeah, because you could definitely do some workshops on electric tractors. Um, and that mulch machine you have with this, the spinning blades of death. Yeah, yeah it's gentle nudges at a high rate of speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. got to be careful um, of that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of, if you look at some of the tools that I've adapted for, you know, what I deem farm-scale permaculture is that a lot of them aren't from the U.S., or they're not in common use in the U.S., you know? And the only reason you hear about those or see them is, is by travel. Mm -hmm. or, uh, or, or Facebook, where you have those videos that are in the foreign language, and it's like a rice seeder, and it looks like a spider on the water, and it's like, blah, 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 and then it's like doing a hundred every foot, you know? Yep, yep, the... Korean automated rice planter thingies. Right, they're yeah. amazing. Or the or the Ukrainian screw firewood splitter. Oh that yeah, and that's interesting on earth. And, le, and I mean that kind of thinking, um, I feel like we lack because we're not given problem solving opportunities in school in America, and that's part yeah. of what I I, I want to bring back is that that unschooling, the allowing kids to make their own decisions and come and argue and play. I, I agree with you 100% that dissent should be encouraged and you should encourage those to, to back up their opinions and not be you know, pressured into conforming, for sure. Um, like you said, like the idea of, of you know, where do you go to the lens store to be able to see other things in other places. And, and I think that school, and I grew up in public school in the U.S., even though my broader upbringing was very unconventional um, you know we public school intends to, to really make people into conformists hmm. and the idea of blinders of, of uh, you know tunnel vision like how can you think about 
the third way or you know the classic thinking outside the box phrase which most people you know hate but really that's what you have to do if you don't encourage abstract thought how can you ever accept to you know expect to attain a different outcome that's so interesting because abstraction to me is what they're doing in school when they do problems that are dislocated from life but i do understand what you're saying about abstraction the ability to create predictions and probabilities and play them out in your head simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So speaking of being a nonconformist, your farm really is a nonconformist farm and it's the best part about it I think is it's smack dab where you say it is in the middle of the bad examples, you know. You're standing yep. tall. So someone asked online about about swales and in the, the in my mind, they were confused, but let's let's get into this because a lot of people are confused about what key line is versus what swales are um, and when you, you would use them. Because sure. for me, I see them as a spectrum. Yep, I, I do as well. Yeah, the, the earthworks spectrum, what, it, what constitutes earthworks mm -hmm. versus, you know, so some people would think that earthworks means you have to have a 60,000 pound excavator on site before it, it's earthworks. And I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, so I do have swales in my place, a very few, not that many. Um, I do have the vast majority of the farm laid out in a key line pattern. Um, that said, I, I, I haven't seen the immediate need to, to put in a bunch of swales all over it or put in giant ponds quite yet. Um, Darren Doherty and I had the conversation about, you know, the energy continuum of a swale versus a, a key line rip, meaning a subsoil rip, you know, in a key line pattern or on contour. And when you subsoil land, um, with the intention of, of harvesting water, you know, in, I have very clay soils, I have silty, silty loam soils that have a lot of clay in them. And when they get wet, they, they, they swell. Right, so the, the soil expands, and it, if you put a rip in the ground and it, get, it rains on it, a month later, it is the soil is swelled and it's filled in that rip. It's self-healed, so it's not effectively soaking in as much water as it otherwise would. Whereas a swale, you know, is on the surface of the land, and it's capturing water in more of a reservoir. Visual. Has time, has time to soak in, right? So the energy input to build a swale takes it takes a lot more energy. To build a swale than it does to just rip a little slit in the ground. Um, that said, you've got to keep ripping those slits every six months or every year, so that's a constant energy input versus a one-time thing, you know. So they each have their pros and cons, um, and in the short term, I've chosen to do a lot more subsoiling than I have swale building. Um, that said, I, I've certainly designed the entire farm before I ever planted a single tree. We had uh, the key, whole key line pattern was already all laid out. Future ponds were already laid out with their respective, you know, volume and how much soil you have to move to make a dam and that kind of thing. That said, the, the biggest ponds, you know, the biggest pond is going to cost me fifty, sixty thousand dollars to build, which I do not have, right? Um, so I've planned for it long term. I'm not, you know, planting anything there in the short term. It certainly is, it will have benefits when it's in place. But I don't need it right away, nor do I have the funds to put it in place. So, yep. Do you add compost tea when you rip? No, but I intend to. I built a little boot for the back of a shank to do that, just that, but I haven't got around to finishing it. 
because yeah. I, I I've heard Elaine Ingham talk about this, and she she's literally she I mean she doesn't talk about earthworks at all because she knows that she could just rip and then throw in uh, beneficial uh, seeds and compost tea, and she can get the results she wants. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty bold, but I think that for a lot of people, just energy-wise, time-wise, it's the fastest way to get soil that holds moisture. Yeah, that's that's one way, for sure. Um, on, on my site, when the vast majority of it is this, this silvopasture setup, Keyline silvopasture, so you've got a row of trees, 30 foot of alleyway, which is forage, and then you know another row of trees. Those trees are getting surface applied mulch, whether that's cut hay or rotten hay or rotten straw or wood chips. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly taking the, you know, the fungal, the bacterial ratio of the soil back more towards the fungal side. And I think that's providing this little area that's really diversifying the, the soil biota. And, you know, however that gets worked into the broader soil profile, it's up to nature, but, you know, it doesn't count as compost tea application, but it certainly is, you know, one way. But you brought in <laughs> fungi, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they got inoculated and stuff like that. So I would say, I mean, it comes to zone, you know? Yeah, I think that's the thing is, 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 is when you do that, you're setting something in motion that is compost tea. Because when it rains on your mulch, what's exactly. percolating through there is compost tea. Every little earthworm hole is, is injecting compost tea. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I think the thing is people are looking for something visual. They want to see something they can measure. And your silvopasture system seems to be harder for people to grasp because you kind of need grasp because you need to be there um, to feel the soil and to see it and to understand the results. I mean, I look at your sea berries and it's like, yeah, yeah, you can tell your soil is rocking. Um, yeah. You can look at your apples and the way they, they, they don't look, I mean, your apples look like they're out of, uh, you know, they look, your apples truly look like they're out of an antique um, apple book or something because like a, like a coffee table book yeah they're young yet i mean but they are you know mm -hmm. they're cool and we we grafted and we're still grafting and it is today's june 16th i we have five refrigerators on the farm like i don't have a walk-in cooler i have to rent one most of the year and i only get to rent it for a couple months in the spring i have five refrigerators sprinkled about right i just found 300 apple rootstocks in the fridge I forgot about. I kid you not, right? Like, that's that's what happens. So we started graphing a couple days ago, you know, another 300 trees because I have sinewood coming out of my ears. Mm -hmm. But we're over 100 heirloom apple varieties so far. I mean, none of them are producing fruit yet, but they're, they're, they're out there, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's what the, I'm talking about, new farm supply. If you look through the, I mean, they're antique apples, they're heirloom apples, they're things that yeah. you don't get anywhere other than two three other uh, other other like online purveyors and that's the crazy thing is that people want them so bad and there is so much market for that kind of thing like i'm a big advocate for there could be a thousand you know maybe not a thousand but a thousand small nurseries in the u.s you know you could you could buy in 200 300 a thousand apple rootstocks graft them on a bench you know, in the dead of winter, whenever you feel like it on the weekends, and in a few days' time, you know, you've got all these grafted apple trees, you stick them in the ground, and then two years later, you know, money rains from the sky. Um, 
Seed Savers, Seed Savers Exchange, which is a seed saving organization based here in Iowa, which I have a lot of respect for. Oh yeah, I've been a member. They they marketed in their catalog this last year um, pre-sale for heirloom apples, right? So you've got to wait a year or two to even get them, and they charge forty nine bucks a piece for them, of which you could make one for you know a dollar fifty if you have the, the right tools and skills. And they published recently how many they pre-sold. Do you have any any guess on how many trees they pre-sold at one at forty nine dollars a piece? I would say over ten thousand. No, not that many. Really? But, yeah, well, uh, one thousand three hundred seventy six. But if you do the math on that, and I'll I'll pull up the calculator here. I mean, that that many trees I could do in a weekend. Yeah. Like, no problem. No problem. Right. Um. I love Seed Savers Exchange because the varieties they have in their actual member-to-member system, you can't get anywhere else. And you can call the people up or write them or email them (laughs) and be like, hey, it's doing this weird thing. It's not the color you said it would be. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's because, you know. Mm -hmm. The the math on that was $67,424 is what the gross receipts were on that. Wow. So if you're a aspiring permaculturalist with a backyard apartment garden or a 16-year-old kid, you know, with time on their hands, that's a that's a full-time income for someone. Yes, it is. You can do in a couple weekends of the year. Um, just crazy. Anyway. Awesome. Yep. So I think that there's is oh Ariel put a, a Ariel Greenwood put. A smatter of questions on the post here on Facebook. I will choose some of them to ask you. Um, What personality types do we need most in permaculture regenerative design? Mm. Um, You know, actually, this is a good question. This this dovetails with the, the homebodies versus the traveling scholars. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think it takes... There's 16 Myers-Briggs personality types. I know that. Um, I'm an NJ, ENTJ. Is that Commander? Um, I only know it by The Simpsons, so that the... Or, or is that main, The Entrepreneur? Because I'm an entrepreneur. I, I don't know what the title of it is, but the, the main characters of The Simpsons yeah. are actually based upon on the Myers-Briggs personality types. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, which is, which is super interesting. That's really interesting. genius, but um, anyway, anyway, so I know who my Simpsons character is. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can see it on some level. Um, oh wow! I don't know if I want to know which one I am. Yeah. Which one are you? Uh, I'm not gonna say my Simpsons character, but I'm an I'm an ENTJ. Okay, ENTJ. I'm gonna have to just yeah, look that it's up. It's Krusty Clown. I really don't identify with him oh. as, far as, as far as a person. Oh, an entertainer. I get it. Yeah. I yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't really consider myself an entertainer either, but you know, I don't um, think I any think of those it, tests are true. Actually, you you do think they're true or not? No, actually. Well, all right. So I have a master's in education. So I started like picking all this stuff apart a few years ago, after like the information they gave me started like percolating. How can someone be the average of their weaknesses and their strengths? That's a very very bold thought. And then how can you actually quantify someone's skill when you give them tests that are really testing how well they can hide their ignorance rather than prove their skill? 
So I don't put I don't put any like you know we are what we decide we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's an, like an, an illish thing. I, I had no idea you had a master's in education. Yeah. Because <laughs> critics come from within its own walls. Well, yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, I was recently listening to Marshall Rosenberg talk about being a psychologist and how he didn't get the information that basically through everything that he thought, he basically realized his last year of tr becoming a psychologist that there was actually no scientific proof that psychology was real. <laughs> yeah, and he mm. kind of, uh, that, that, that upset him monetarily, I think, too. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it gave me skills, uh, my master's gave me skills that I've been able to apply to a lot of different things. The most valuable skill that I have in use on a day-to-day -day basis, and I don't think you should ever, well, the most valuable skill is that I don't try and uh, distill something down to one skill. I think the most valuable skill is that I'm a generalist and I can do a lot of different things. Maybe not all of them the best, but I can do a lot of different things. I know HTML, I can do a website. I know marketing side of stuff. I've got a solid understanding of finance. I've got really good mechanical skills. I can figure out plumbing, I can figure out circuits. I have above average, you know, knowledge of animal behavior. Um, I'm not an expert at any one of those things, but I'm a damn good generalist. And I think that is my most valuable skill is that I know, you know, a decent amount about a lot of things. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a CPA. I can barely run QuickBooks, but I can do it. Um, so, yeah. Were you ever afraid of being a generalist? Because I was told early on uh, that don't don't be a jack of all trades or a master of none. And so I poured myself into my base and it really taught me how to master something. But then I learned how to master stuff. And so I started mastering everything, you know what I mean? That I, mm -hmm. that I could. That's the rage to mastery thing. I, I do that too, but I don't think I ever reach mastery. I just geek out on something for a long time. Yeah. Um, well, mastery is uh, only a perception that others have of you when they lack those skills. Okay, then, yes. Um, I, I literally, I mean, I'm pretty much unemployable, so I've never really worked for someone else. For wow. A, you know, okay. Really? Uh, I bartended for two months in college, didn't really like it. Um, that was a, my extent of working for someone else where I didn't have stock in the outcome. You know, so I was either in a partnership or something like that if I was in a, in a company. Um, so by by necessity, I think I picked up a lot of skills mm -hmm. in property in property management. I mean, I, I grew up with divorced parents, right? So I more or less was raised by a single mom most of my life. And you know, we were in a house that was older. And when things break, and you're ten with a forty year old mom, you can't pay to fix it. You know, what do you do? You know. Um, so we learned how to do stuff, you know, fixing toilets, pulling up subfloors, um, you know, lots of stuff. And, you know, you go to the hardware store and you talk to the nice old man there and he tells you how to fix the plumbing. Um, I mean, that kind of stuff, which again, if you're never forced to, you know, be exposed to that, if you don't have that necessity to learn those skills, you'll never learn it because you don't have to. And now I'm 34. I have, you know, these generalist skills in a lot of things. And I don't want to be that guy who's like, I'm so awesome, I can do all these things, blah, Because there's certainly those times when you're, 
you know, knee deep in mud with oil all over your face when I'm like, if I was not a generalist, I would never be in this situation. (laughs) But because you are a generalist, you can get out of it, you know? Um, I I replaced a starter on my pickup in December this year in bitter Iowa cold without a lift, you know, just kind of underneath the truck, you know, freezing your ass off, can barely feel your hands. But I got it done because I had to, you know. Anyway. So what's the biggest mistake? Uh, what's, what mistakes have you made? And uh, what can you share that would help other people learn? Uh, Jacob's got all these deep questions. His last one is, what are a few niche markets that you're exploiting? And then what are ones that you aren't filling that I can fill, basically? <laughs> sure. Well, um, I think the, the, the question about, you know, what niche markets am I pursuing and what other ones are still available kind of comes forth with a scarcity mindset of like, yep. there can be one person doing this one thing in the Midwest or wherever. And That's once it. you do that, no one else can do it anymore. <laughs> um, and a, a lot of, you know, I, I'm, I'm more on the agroforestry side of permaculture and either you're growing lumber, you know, from an agroforestry perspective, you're either growing lumber or you're selling non, non-timber forest products, they call them. And they'll oftentimes say, oh, you can grow curly basket willow or elderberry or you're growing sawlocks. You know, those are your two options. Mm-hmm. And I think the growing curly basket willow or elderberries is a lot more of a niche market than sawlocks. And I'm trying to shoot right down the middle for things that have broad market appeal that aren't being pursued. Um, you know, and cider apples are something that I'm pursuing in a big way. Um, I'm gluten-free. Um, so I really see, you know, the big broad scale trend on gluten intolerance in the U.S. I'm very naive as to the causes of that. You know, we could say it could be many different causes. I can't prove one or the other. All I know is that it's a fact and it's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to pursue market opportunities, um, you know, in that realm. Um, so one could say that, you know, geez, if oil prices ever go up, chestnut flour is going to be a really popular thing among the gluten-free paleo local lore, you know, set, and that's true. But you're talking a 15-year timeline to get there, you know? Yeah. Well, um, when, when I, you, I think that the reality is in 15 years, we're going to be needing you setting these up everywhere. I mean, when, when I feel like since it is a time-lapse thing, and because our time is being eaten up very rapidly by abuse, we need... It's a good way of putting it. Yeah, we we need thousands, maybe millions of your of your farm. I'm just one guy, um, yeah, one person with a great team doing cool things. But I, you're right, there needs to be a lot more people, and I don't want to say that I'm the model that everyone should emulate. I think everyone needs to do their own thing. But know, that's the thing. Their own place. But you'd have that. That's but that's exactly it. Is that I fear that many people are saying this is the model, and you're saying. Well, let's talk about models. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of the things, like in, in the farm scale permaculture course, we talk about is that in regular business, you know, regular quote unquote regular business or regular agribusiness, the idea of an enterprise budget is super important. You know, looking at your costs, looking at timelines, looking at cash flows, and, and how are you going to make that profitable on on many levels. And when you look, like for grass-based livestock, for example, 
the market demand for true pasture-raised, hormone-free, grass-based livestock is already huge. I mean, demand is already outpacing supply. The growth trend is, is phenomenal for that on the whole. But when you look at it from a conventional agronomic perspective, you know, cattle is at, let's say, $1.30 a pound conventional, and it's at 5 bucks a pound for direct-marketed grass-finished whole animal. And, you know, you know you can do that, and you know those returns are, are available and viable, and you're talking about a 4x return, you know, above and beyond a conventional producer, but convincing a banker of that is a different story, you know? Um, so I think that grass-based livestock is a huge non-niche market potential for permaculture. I think that um, organic tree crops is a huge market that isn't necessarily niche, that's still undersaturated for permaculture. I think that uh, cider apples, for you know, both fermented and non-fermented apple juice, is a huge market as far as getting diversity back, back in there, especially in our, in our organic production scheme. Um, I think that if you want to drill down a little bit more as far as niche goes, species of, of animals, you know, you, you've got some some niche animal species, goats, yaks, etc., for different, you know, the multicultural American market that's underutilized is, is growing. Um, On-farm slaughter. You know, different religions, you know, prefer to be able to slaughter their own animals. If they can come on, you know, buy a live animal, slaughter, take it home with them, um, that sort of thing. And when you get into some of those, you know, more niche type stuff, then you're getting into more into regulation. Um, and it's just like, man, if we just lived in a free, a truly free, non-crony capitalist economy, we could do all this stuff. Anyway. Do you think market demand will uh, ever turn that over? I think market demand will continue to expand until at, at, a, at a comparable rate to resource markets adjusting necessarily. And, and what I mean by that is that we know that, I, I believe, and I think that many others do, is that the, the, one of the major health epidemics of, in the United States and across the world relates to our food intake, what we're eating and what we're not eating. And for me, that means... Um, you know, nutrient balances, you know, we're, we're, we're eating a lot more corn syrup than we are eating lard, and it should be back to the way it was in 1920, you know? So I think there's, on a global population basis, we can completely shift agriculture back to where it needs to be from our health perspective. So once you realize that and you accept those facts, um, you don't have to worry about what if and what that dynamic continuum looks like, you know, if it's going to take 15 years or 100 years, you know, it's going to have to happen, and that shift is going to happen you know, as demand requires it. So I might have a solution to the 15 year thing. So the podcast I t uh, that I had earlier with Jeff was really interesting because Jeff was describing something that is coming to America. They're legally building something new. And it's called a farm share farm. So you could sell shares in your farm and they would get certain percentage of the farm output at market cost minus 5% and they would own it. So if you had goats and it was milk, the raw milk is their milk. So it's like a herd share. They own it. There's no regulation on stuff you own, right? So there, the, the whole idea of artisanal cheeses, the raw milk people, the, you know, all these different things, raw almonds, 
all these things that we desire for health reasons, we're going to be able to access potentially. And maybe you could turn your farm into an investment for farm shareholders. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. That, that's a good idea in, in, on some level. I know some states in the U.S. specifically make herd share farm share actually illegal. Right. Um, what constitutes the farm business versus the operating entity is another question. I mean, it, you know, legally, I'm sure there's always a way to skin a cat. Um, Iowa limits the amount of the number of owners for farmland specifically to kind of uh, discourage against corporate ownership of farmland. Um, that being said, I will never give up any equity in this farm. Period. I'll take on debt, but I'll never give up equity. Yeah. Um, yep, that's very American of you, and I salute that. I totally want <laughs> land all the way, all the way. You know, one hundred percent my own. So awesome, man! Thank you so much for coming. I have to run. Okay, yeah, great talking, man. Thank you for dropping in. Kind of went all over the place with Grant Schultz, but that's the fun of it. And I feel like that's what we should be able to do, at least on my show. Hope you had a good one. And I'll be checking in later this week to talk about Permaculture Life School, the Indiegogo campaign that we're running, and about how my family got into permaculture to begin with. So, be talking to you then. Have a good one. Bye. (laughs) 